My name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Pam. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Greetings, church. Greetings. Good morning. My name is Marvin. Thank you for standing for the reading found in John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, nothing that comes into being, what has come into being, in him was life, and the life was the light of People, the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's remain standing as we pray. It's good to see you back in church, Marvin. We're glad to have you here. Glad your surgery went well. Let's all thank God for Brother Marvin. Yeah. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that you speak to us. We thank you for the way that your word is alive. And so we welcome now the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we have this conversation today and we open up the scriptures and we marvel at creation, uh, would you cause us to behold uh, the wisdom and the beauty of the Lord in all of this? And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you for being here this morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is Glenn Packiam. I serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown. We are in for a treat today. We've been looking forward to this Sunday uh, for a few weeks now. I want to read the formal introduction of our special guest, and then I want to add some personal comments to this. This morning we have with us uh, the Reverend Professor David Wilkinson, who is the principal of St. John's College, which is one of the colleges in Durham University. Uh, We don't quite have that system here in the U.S. In fact, very few universities still have it. But if you think of it like the houses of Gryffindor or of uh, Hogwarts, then you're on the right track. 
he is also a lecturer in the Department of Theology and Religion, teaching on preaching and apologetics, and contributes to a range of other courses. He holds PhDs in both theoretical astrophysics and systematic theology. Uh, his current work involves the relationship of the Christian faith to contemporary culture, from science to pop culture. He's written a number of books concerning science and the Christian faith, including God, Time, and Stephen Hawking. Uh, in addition, he's also written on the spirituality in contemporary films uh, in a book called The Power of the Force, The Spirituality of Star Wars. We'll have to have a sneak in a question about that. He's also written on the Christian doctrine of holiness for a new generation in a book called A Holiness of the Heart. And he's written an exposition of the biblical themes of creation in an IVP commentary called The Message of Creation, which I uh, read part of this summer and really, really enjoyed. Now, uh, I met David because when I began my studies over at Durham for my uh, doctoral work, um, he was, he's the principal over St. John's where the program is sort of housed and and, uh, and he was very kind to me. And, and in particular, when you're over there, you're kind of looking for uh, maybe some sense of a connection or a common ground with someone. And I felt that uh, in our brief conversations. And then the time came to select supervisors, and I needed one on the sociology side, and I needed one on the theology side. And, and David very graciously agreed to be my theological supervisor. And I, I have to tell you that those times of supervision were a great source of strength and joy uh, to me and encouragement along the way. He was basically my Dumbledore. And, uh, uh, and so, which, anyway, the Harry Potter illusions abound because part of the films were filmed in Durham. So anyway, uh, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for your kindness and your encouragement to me over the years. And what a privilege. There's a a convention happening in Denver. Oh, well, there's the graduation picture from this summer. Uh, David was actually on his uh, family holiday, but took time out to come and attend the ceremony just to be able to see us and greet us. So again, a picture of his kindness. He's been up at a convention in Denver for the American Academy of Religion uh, and, and flies back um, today. So in fact, we'll have to kind of sneak out after the time today, but we're so grateful for him fitting us in. Would you give a warm New Life Downtown welcome to David Wilkinson. Thank you very much, and uh, it's the first time actually that I was sitting there, I just wondered, there's a surprising likeness to Harry Potter, don't you think, <laughs> in that way. Um, I have to say that your pastor um, is very kind, but uh, he is one of the most uh, outstanding theological students I've ever had the privilege uh, to teach, and um, you won't be surprised by that, and therefore... Uh, supervising him in his doctoral work was a very easy thing to do because it's so good. Yeah. So uh, yeah. you're, you're very kind. You're very kind. <laughs> well, we're so glad to have you here. And I wonder, just even by way of introduction, David, if you'd tell us a little bit about how you became a Christian and what that journey was like for you. Uh, my parents were Christians, but as a teenager, really for me, God was a long way away. If he existed, that was an intellectual concept. Um, and I didn't like church very much. It was terribly boring. Then a number of things happened when I was around the age of 17. The first is I fell desperately in love with a girl who went to a local Christian youth group. <laughs> and so I started to go along to that church in order to try and go out with her. Uh, I never did. But um, I found amongst these Christian young people something that I didn't have. I didn't quite know what it was, but it was something different. 
Secondly, I, I've always been very much into the music of Bob Dylan, and this shows how old I am. Dylan went through his Christian phase, and for the first time, I heard about Jesus in a language mm. and a culture that made sense to me. Mm. Um, before that, I thought that you'd only talk about Jesus in hymns of the 17th or 18th <laughs> century, and here was something that was relevant to me. And the third thing was, I began to read the New Testament, and uh, much of it I didn't understand, but the central story of Jesus captivated me. There was no other explanation for me than that this Jesus was God himself walking the pages of history, that the crucifixion was about a God paying the price for my sin. And in a very simple way, at the age of 17, in a communion service, uh, on a Sunday morning, I just felt uh, the Holy Spirit say, um, now's the time. And uh, that was just before I started to go to university. Mm, it's beautiful. And then when did your, your love for science develop? Well, funnily enough, after becoming a Christian. Mm. Uh, I wasn't the type of, of child who built a telescope at the age of four <laughs> or who solved, you know, a bit like young Sheldon, if you've been watching the series. That wasn't me. Uh, but uh, I, I'd chosen to do physics at university, and uh, as long as you don't tell anyone this, I'll tell you the real reason. And that is I wanted to play cricket at university. Now, cricket is the best sport in the world. Um, there are some on this side of the Atlantic who don't agree with that <laughs> for some reason. We've improved it. We uh, called it that's baseball. Right, that's yeah. right, yes. Yes. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, but uh, I, I needed a subject, therefore, at university, which wouldn't take very long because I had lots of cricket to play. And I wasn't bad at mathematics, and I knew physics I didn't have to do essays. And so um, I'd wanted to do physics. I had some interest in science. But what happened was that as through Jesus, I got to know more and more this God of creation. So what God had actually done became more and more important. Uh, my daughter Hannah's here with me uh, this morning. And when she was small, she would bring back lots of paintings from school, drawings, and we'd put them all over our kitchen. And if people came in and said, that's a wonderful picture, uh, we wouldn't say, you're lying. <laughs> because my daughter actually has many gifts, but as an artist, she's hopeless. <laughs> I mean, um, and, these pictures, and these pictures were truly terrible. <laughs> but we'd say to the person who said, isn't that a wonderful picture? We'd say, yes, it is, isn't it? Why? Because we knew the person who'd created it. We loved the person who'd created it. Now, do you see that uh, if you love the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then what God has done, the universe, his works, become even more important, even more exciting. So you studied the sciences first and went on and did your PhD there, and then decided you wanted to do another one in, in theology. How did you see faith and science? Did you ever find them conflicting, or how, what was that like? Yes, I've always found faith and science to be in a conversation, and sometimes my faith has asked my science difficult questions, and sometimes my science has asked my faith difficult <laughs> questions, and I don't claim to have had the answer 
to all of those questions. All I can testify to is that as I've struggled with those questions, my enthusiasm for science has grown mm. and my enthusiasm for Christian faith has grown. Now, of course, Glenn, as you know, we live in a culture which often puts science and yeah. faith yeah. Uh, opposing each other. In young Sheldon, um, Sheldon keeps asking questions of the pastor that the pastor can't answer, and this is a typical conflict between science and faith. And when people say to me, well, aren't they in conflict? How can you have one or the other? I think we've got to recognize that science uh, explains only certain things about the universe, mm. not everything. So to use a, a silly and old illustration, what is a scientific definition of a kiss? Well, a kiss is the approach of two pairs of lips, the reciprocal transmission of carbon dioxide and microbes, and the juxtaposition of, of two orbicular muscles in a state of contraction. That is a kiss in scientific terms. But when I see my wife, Alison, tomorrow, and if I say to her, Alison, let's get together, for a mutual transmission of carbon dioxide and microbes. <laughs> Let me juxtapose my orbicular muscle in a state of contraction with yours. She would say, get lost. <laughs> you see, in that context with my wife, I describe a kiss in terms of meaning, value, purpose, love. Which is the true definition of a kiss? Is it one about carbon dioxide and microbes? Or is it the one about value and meaning? Actually, both are true, but different. And to fully understand what a kiss is about, I need both understandings. So when it comes to the origin of the universe, for example, which I worked in for a number of years, um, then the scientific account can describe certain things mm -hmm. about what God has done. But it doesn't tell us what the meaning or value or purpose of the universe is. For me, that only comes uh, through Christian faith. So some people say, well, science answers the how questions. How, how does this work? How, you know, but, but faith answers the why questions. Is that helpful? Are there limits to that? It, it is helpful, but as you rightly say, there are some limits to it. It's, if you like, the first order um, way of understanding it. Actually, I think science and faith uh, do have different foci, that is, how and why, but they also interact with each other, rather like we're doing in a conversation. That's questions of each other. They uh, raise things. And so you don't have science and faith as a, as a superstructure where everything fits in. Actually, they're dynamic. They're asking questions all of the time. So when we get to uh, artificial intelligence, for example, and we begin to ask the question, um, is this machine conscious? then that raises questions for both science and theology. If we uh, begin to ask the question, where does science itself come from? Now, this is an interesting thing. You know that science was largely born out of Christian theology. Most people don't realize that. But the scientific revolution was due to the fact that um, people thought if God has created the universe freely, then the only way to understand the universe is to look at what God has done. That's the basis of empirical science, mm. observation. That came out of a Christian conviction. Mm. 
So when folk like um, Professor Dawkins and uh, Professor Lawrence Krauss and others say, what has theology ever done for the world? <laughs> the answer is, it's given us the science by which you explore the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, that's a conversation between science and theology, and so they're always interacting. So I want you to show this video now of, of the cosmos and, and narrate for us kind of the wonders of creation. Would yes, you do that? thank you. Of course, I, I brought a little video with me. It's called Powers of Ten. Some of you might have seen it before. It's a wonderful way of just understanding a little bit about the nature of the universe. And what we're going to do is we're going to start off with a couple having a picnic in a park. And we're going to expand the size of the picture by a factor of 10 every 10 seconds. So on the left-hand side of the screen, we've traveled about 10 or 100 meters or so. On the right-hand side of the screen is a mathematical way of writing exactly the same thing. If you don't understand that, don't worry. Just smile as if you do. That'll be fine. And as we move through the universe, we see it at different perspectives. We see different structures. We have a city here now in a big expanse of water. We're not entirely sure what it is. At this point, we need to be traveling in an Apollo rocket or a space shuttle. And we look back, and what begins to emerge is the continent of North America and a great lake. We now leave the atmosphere of this wonderful home, which we call the Earth, this wonderful blue planet. If you're a Star Trek nerd, we're traveling at warp factor one or so <laughs> at the moment. And in a moment, you'll see a horizontal line extend across the screen. That's the true speed of light at this perspective. It gives you a sense of how quickly light travels. In a moment, it's there, it there it is. That ellipse is the orbit of the moon, about 240,000 miles from the Earth. Um, now, that's the average distance a human being walks in their lifetime, 240,000 miles. How people calculate that, I've no idea, but I read it on Wikipedia, so it must be right. <laughs> this now is the orbit of the Earth, and we will remind ourselves of our close neighbors, the orbits of the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, and then our hot ball of gas, our sun, our local star. Now we'll remind ourselves of our outer neighbors, big gas giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and uh, this video is so old that even Pluto's orbit <laughs> is on here. Most of us don't believe that Pluto's a planet anymore. We're now moving through a vast cloud of comets called the Oort Cloud. Millions and millions of comets left over from the way the universe formed. It was a disturbance in these comets about 65 million years or so ago that's believed to have led to the dinosaur extinction. We're running out of space at the left-hand side of the screen, if you forgive the pun. First congregation got that, second congregation didn't. Is that kind of typical, is that? Yeah. So we're now talking about distances. This is, this is they're barracking now. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. 10 light years. This is the distance that light has taken 10 years to travel. And we begin to see that our sun is one star in a collection of stars called the Milky Way Galaxy. And that is a collection of 100 billion stars. Uh, this is our Milky Way galaxy beginning to emerge. And you'll see a spiral pattern of gas 
these are maternity hospitals for stars, <laughs> giving birth to about 10,000 stars, big clouds of gas. Dust and uh, stars. From one side of the galaxy to the other is a distance of 100,000 light years. Mm. Uh, it takes eight minutes for light to travel from the sun to the earth. Across our galaxy is 100,000 years. Uh, each of the dots of light, which I hope you can see, yes, on the screen there, is now a galaxy typically containing 100 billion stars. Mm. How many galaxies are there in the universe, I hear you cry? <laughs> well, it's something of the order of 100 billion. Mm. Now, I know it's early on a Sunday morning, but let's do a little math. How many stars are there in the universe? Very easy. 100 billion multiplied by 100 billion. And the answer is a lot. <laughs> That's something like the grains of sand on every beach of the world, mm. if you can imagine that. So when John says, in him all things are made, when the writer of Genesis talks about uh, how God is the sole creator of the universe, when Jesus in Colossians is described, the one who sustains all things, mm. do you get a, a sense of just how big mm. our God is? how extraordinary our God is. Well, uh, we're retracing our steps, as you saw in the animation. We're making our way back, and if uh, our aim is good enough into the inner solar system, we find the Earth, and if our parachute is big enough, we'll find ourselves back in Chicago, where we started, <laughs> uh, where the folk are having picnic. Um, you'll see by the clothes that they're wearing what decade this movie was made in. And you'll see by the clothes I'm wearing what decade I'm still stuck in. But we're going to extend our story now. Because one of the things about modern physics is the way that the very big is connected to the very small. So we're going to continue our story, this time making the picture smaller by a factor of 10 every 10 seconds and we'll go into the man's hand. Well, at about one centimeter squared, you can look at the back of your own hand and see a little bit of structure in the layers of skin, but that's not terribly interesting. So let's make the picture much smaller. And first of all, you begin to see blood vessels. Uh, and if we go inside the blood vessel, uh, there's a white blood cell. Let's make the picture smaller, and inside the white blood cell, is the cell nucleus. And inside the nucleus of the cell, uh, we'll see, beginning to emerge, the spiral coils of DNA, part of the stuff that makes us, us. Um, DNA is a complex molecule, and we're going to focus on one atom in that molecule. It's going to be a carbon atom in the center of the screen. You start to see it emerge now. Well, let's make the picture smaller. Let's go inside the carbon atom. And uh, we enter it just about now. The first thing we encounter are electrons. Now, in this animation, they're shown to be fuzzy. That's because of something called quantum theory. We haven't got time to do quantum <laughs> theory this morning. Praise the Lord, everyone says. But, Pastor, can you do it next week? Uh, and... Uh, uh, we'll remind ourselves that the atom has a nucleus to it. The nucleus of the carbon atom is very, very small. If it was the size of a football, a soccer ball, sorry, 
uh, the atom would be the size of a soccer stadium. Uh, this is uh, carbon's uh, nucleus made up of protons and neutrons. And the protons and neutrons are made up of things called quarks. Now, we can't show you what quarks are like because there's a particular force which keeps them stuck in. And that's about the end of our um, journey. Now, I mean, Glenn, I've used that piece of video a number of times. Some of you will have seen it a number of times. I have to say, it always fills me with a sense of awe yeah. at all of this. Yeah. Um, now, let me just qualify that by saying those of you who are scientists will know that science isn't always about awe-inspiring experiences. It's often about experiments that don't work, <laughs> about research students who don't, tell, don't do what you tell them to do. <laughs> it's about research councils who don't give you enough funding. But there are, in the midst of all of that, wow moments mm. where you go, gosh, mm. wow. Mm when you see the beauty of the universe. What does creation tell us about God? From the grandness of the universe to the detail of our own bodies, I mean, what, what does creation reveal? It reveals a lot of things, but remember, you've always got to read the world mm. from the perspective of God's word. Mm. Uh, Charles Darwin once said, the world, if taken by itself, tells us that the Lord has an inordinate fondness for beetles. <laughs> Um, of the small variety rather than the musical variety, of course. Um, so, so I read the universe from a perspective of Scripture. And so one of the things that science raises is, of course, where does it all come from? Now, I don't mean in a crude idea where you try and prove God sure, sure. by saying um, God must have started the whole things off. That's a God of the gaps type argument. But where do the laws of physics themselves come from? Mm. Now, Genesis is really interesting because it says that God is the sole creator of the universe. Mm. God is the one who provides order in the universe. In fact, that's the way the text is written, to give a sense mm. of beauty and order mm. to it, to say this is only a, an orderly world because God made it that way. So God is the source of the laws of physics for me, by which the universe develops. And then, um, God is a God of extravagance. I mean, isn't this amazing? Lots of people think God the divine mathematician. And sometimes, it has to be said, I'm one of them, mathematicians are a little boring. God's not like that. He's both a mathematician and a great artist who just flings the stars into space, 100 billion stars and 100 billion galaxies. Mm. Why? Because God loves extravagance. Mm. I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian who doesn't drink alcohol, and so the most embarrassing New Testament miracle for me is when the Lord changes water into wine. <laughs> and what's really interesting about that story is that God changes between 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. And you think to yourself, why did Jesus do that at a party where most people are already drunk? <laughs> I think it's because God loves extravagance. Mm. Mm. I, I hope you know that in your own life, mm. that God's a God of abundance. He loves extravagance. He loves diversity. Mm. And that's uh, one of the things from the heavens. And I suppose the last thing from the heavens, uh, as I read um, the world through this, 
the lens of Scripture, is that human beings have a very special place. Mm. Now, we sometimes talk in science about the Goldilocks enigma. This is the fact that the laws of physics seem so sensitively balanced for the existence of people like you and me, carbon-based intelligence. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not wanting to prove God through this. For me, the way you encounter the reality of God is through Jesus Christ, mm. not through philosophical argument, mm. first mm. and foremost. But it is a reminder that Genesis says exactly the same thing, that you and I mm. have a special place. Mm. In the Babylonian story of creation, mm. called Enuma Elish, it talks about human beings as the servants or slaves of the gods, mm. who have to provide food and drink for for the gods. It's a bit like that British television series, Downton Abbey, if you have ever seen it, with the gods up there and human beings down there <laughs> serving. Genesis 1 says, absolutely not. We're made in the image of God. God gives us his responsibility to share in looking after the world. Uh, God walks in the garden and talks with Adam and Eve. It's an intimate picture of of relationship. Uh, so those are some of the things. That's so beautiful. Say a bit more about the Genesis text and even the rhythms of order, the, the number of Hebrew words, mm. that, the, the naming of sun and moon as lesser well, lights. I'm, I'm conscious I'm in the presence of Jason, who's an expert <laughs> in these areas. And I'm just a mere astrophysicist <laughs> when it comes to such things. Um, but you see, I do think that, Glenn, if you had the author of Genesis here this morning, uh, which would be a far more interesting oh, well, conversation. Yes. <laughs> and you ask the author of Genesis, um, how old is the universe? I think the author of Genesis would say, to be honest, Glenn, I'm not really interested in that. <laughs> what I'm interested in is that you know that God is a God of fantastic creativity mm. who's there to be worshipped. Mm. So for me, I think the rhythms of Genesis 1 are actually a song of mm. worship. Mm -hmm. They're there to catch us up into rejoicing in worship over who God is. But underneath that, there's also some interesting things going on. So although the number seven, often people get hung up with days, the number seven goes through the chapter in lots of ways. Um, with verses featuring seven or 14 words, the word God appears 35 times. The phrase God saw it was good seven times. Now, you don't need to be a great mathematician to know that they're all divisible by seven. And the number seven to the Hebrew is that which speaks of beauty and order. So do you see the writer is just subtly mm -hmm. saying, God is there. And then there's a bit of what we call theological polemic going on. Or what Don't I call trolling. Trolling, okay. <laughs> this is new to me. Um, so in verse 16 of Genesis 1, the writer says... God made the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Now, what's, what's the writer referring to by the greater light or the lesser light? Sun and the moon. Have you ever wondered why the writer doesn't use the words sun and moon there? Well, if you know a little bit about the ancient Near East, you'll know that there were various stories of creation which um, featured the sun god and the moon god. And what the writer is saying is basically, 
Don't be so stupid to believe that the sun and the moon are gods. They're simply the greater light and the lesser light created by the one true God. Beautiful. Uh, or maybe just to add one more quick example. Uh, do you remember the phrase in Genesis 1 where it says, he created the great creatures of the sea? He uses a very special word for create there which is only used in verse 1, God created the heavens and earth, and later on in the chapter, in God created human beings. And you might think to yourself, special word for create, okay, for everything, that's okay. For human beings, that's okay. But why use that special word for great creatures of the sea? I mean, is God particularly into whales? <laughs> is his favorite movie franchise, Free Willy? Is SeaWorld his park of preference. Well, again, if you know the ancient Near East, you'll know that God often, in other stories of creation, has to overcome the great creatures of the sea before he creates. So the writer again is saying, don't worry if these great creatures of the sea exist, because they're all created by the one true God. Mm. Mm. Setting him over and above everything Absolutely. Else. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so like the video, let's zoom in now. Let's talk about something that's closer to home for all of us, prayer and miracles. How does that work? I mean, can miracles even be possible? Can God override his yeah. laws? Well, I, I do have to get a plane in about five hours, but we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll discuss this. I mean, it's a very important issue, and we, we need to do it justice. So forgive me for... Yeah. for, for uh, giving a brief reply. Um, I'm a scientist who doesn't have a problem with miracles in scientific terms. Part of the problem that we inherited in the West was Isaac Newton's view of the world. Newton got a few good equations and he applied it to simple systems in the world. Systems like the motion of the earth around the sun. And it worked. And what came from that was the clockwork universe. Mm. Newton said, the universe is a bit like a clock. Um, I can predict it because it's a mechanism. And I can know what the world was like in the past. And I can predict what the world is going to be like in the future. And this perfect clock which God created. And the problem was, where does then God come in? Because if I ever got a Rolex watch, which would never be the case, but if I ever did, I wouldn't want to be taking it back to the shop every two weeks for it to be corrected. If it's a perfect mechanism, right. then God can't poke his fingers into the mechanism. He wouldn't need to. And actually, that was the, 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 the start of people beginning to doubt miracles within the New Testament. Because they said, God can't do miracles. Therefore, some of the New Testament stories, they said were created by the early church's myths to try and say something about Jesus. But the starting point for that was wrong. The universe is not like a clock. A little bit of it is, a little bit of predictable. But we now know in the 20th century of something called quantum theory, which says that the universe is inherently unpredictable. And chaos theory, which uh, is responsible for things like the weather, which also says... However big a computer you have, you cannot predict the weather with certainty three weeks in advance. We know that in Colorado. Yeah. I mean, we know that. 
Um, because the universe is much more subtle than that. And this caused the International Union of Mathematicians to issue an apology. <laughs> Mathematicians don't apologize very often, <laughs> but uh, 20 years or so ago, they apologized to the general public for promoting this clockwork universe, mm. which actually isn't the case. Now, so I think God sustains the laws of physics. That's his regular ways of working. I think there are areas of science that God can work through, but also believe that if God created all of those laws, he has the freedom uh, to surpass them at times. Hannah's my, my daughter here, and when she and her brother were small, we had rules and regulations. One of those was about bedtime. They had to go to bed at a certain hour, and by having an agreement on that, they would know how to grow responsibly, or to put it another way, how many hours of computer games they could play <laughs> before going to bed. And they needed that in order to have a stable world. But there would be moments in their childhood when the greatest football team on the planet, soccer team on the planet, Newcastle United, were playing on the television terrible. in They're the evening. And because of that, their normal bedtime would be suspended so that they would be able to watch this football match. Now, I think that's what the Bible calls grace. I mean, um, not watching Newcastle United, but that sometimes God's normal ways of working are transcended for special purposes. Now, Glenn, can I be clear on this? I've said I don't have problems on a purely scientific level. What I do have problems with miracles for, and I'm very open with the Lord about this, is why God answers some prayers but not others. If God can do this, why does he do it in certain circumstances, not others? Why does a dear brother or sister um, drive their car to the supermarket um, and think, oh, I need a car parking space near the door? And they pray, and suddenly a car parking space <laughs> opens up. Now, I have a difficulty with that. Part of me wants to say, thank you, Lord. Rejoice with you, brother, for the, for the confidence in prayer you have. But part of me wants to say, Lord, why do it there and you're not answering the prayer that I'm praying for the person who's sick with cancer? Do you know what I mean? We all, I think, struggle with that. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those questions that I have which I don't have the answer to. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm going to be in line uh, you know, in the new heaven and new earth, hopefully, with hand raised aloft saying, Lord, <laughs> can you just explain this? Um, but I don't have an easy answer to things of that sort. So moving from creation into redemption, uh, even when we don't have answers, we do have hope. We do. And, and what is our hope, not just for the world and creation, but even for ourselves as individuals? Um, one of the things that we've discovered in science, and I did a little bit of work on this, very, very minor bit, but was that the universe is destined to futility. Uh, it is expanding at such a rate that uh, the energy will get smeared out more and more that eventually uh, there will be no life in the universe at all. 
Now, don't worry, that'll happen in about 20 billion years or so. So we're all right for lunch, at least. <laughs> but the long-term future of the physical universe is not one of hope at all. That's where, in the, in the New Testament, I'm thrilled to see that the hope of the New Testament is of a new heaven yeah. and a new earth. Uh, and this is where Glenn did some of his really fine work in terms of uh, gazing forward. And this is, this is not a spiritual hope in the sense that one day we'll die and our ghostly kind of spirits will float up to ghostly clouds where we'll play ghostly harps <laughs> forevermore. Actually, the New Testament is about resurrection. Yes. And the resurrection of Jesus is both the evidence for hope, God's raised Jesus bodily from the tomb, but it's also the example of what is to come. So Paul talks about the resurrection is the first fruits yes. of what will happen to you and I when we die, but also of the whole universe. And the amazing thing about Jesus resurrected is that he seemed to be more than physical. By what I mean, he ate fish, and yet he appeared in rooms with locked doors. Um, C.S. Lewis used to talk about Shadowlands, and he said, lots of us believe that this is the world of real color, of solidity, and that one day our souls will go into this gray Shadowlands. And Lewis said, that's the wrong way around. This life is the Shadowlands, the new creation, is more colorful, mm. more physical, mm. more material, more joyous mm. than this. Amen. Now, all of that, I think, is built on the resurrection of Jesus, and that gives me hope. Amen, amen, amen. Let's thank God for that. One of the books that David has written that I read a couple years ago is called When I Pray, What Does God Do? And he brought in a box and we sold out in the first service. Uh, so there is that. But uh, you, 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 you can find it on Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or where, wherever it is that you buy books. And I, I would, I really encourage it because he goes into quite a bit more detail about um, how God has built in space within his world for him to work within and how God works with uh, the, the, the totality of how he's created us. So we don't have to say things like, uh, well, is that God or is that just my, my brain or is that just my emotion? But you can see this as a, a holistic picture and there's, there's, there's quite a bit of uh, pastoral heart in, in this book as well as you've picked up from David. Uh, as he's mentioned, he does have a flight to catch, so we're going we're gonna to slip out here in a moment. But David, I wonder if we could uh, pray over you before Please, we turn our you. hearts to the Lord's table. Would you Appreciate stretch out your hands, church? So, Father, we thank you for David. We thank you for his wife, Allison. We thank you for their children. We thank you for their lives of faithfulness to you, of humility, of service to you. Thank you for the ways that uh, their lives and ministry and work have encouraged so many people. And Lord, we pray for your grace to abound to them in every way. Lord, where they need your uh, protection or your provision or your healing, Lord, would you do that? And would you return to David an extraordinary amount of strength and joy, even as he travels, even as Hannah goes back to uh, where she's doing her master's? Lord, mm -hmm. we just pray for your grace to be with the both of them. And Lord, for his work, would you bless it, multiply yes. it, uh, make it the kind of thing that brings hope to people? Mm -hmm 
that many will see the good news of Jesus. Mm. Yes. We come to, be, to stand in awe of your creation and of your redemption mm. and to put their trust in you. We pray yes. this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. amen. Let's thank him thank again you. for being here. Thank you, David.